Papers are coming out every day. Question is, do you have time to read all these papers? I know, we don't have enough time to read. That's why I started this podcast, I call it No Time to Read. It sounds funny, but it makes sense. I'm your host, Ari Prashaf, will invite first author or corresponding author of a recently published plant biology paper, and they will share the story. With this, I'd like to welcome you to the No Time to Read podcast. And you can find and subscribe the podcast at Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hi friend, welcome to the season one, episode eight of a No Time to Read podcast. Today we'll discuss about a paper which came recently in PNS. More importantly, it's in the cover page in the current issue of PNS. This paper is about cytokine and clavada crosstalk for shoot maelstrom regulation. To know more about this paper, we have Joseph Camarata with us. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Before jumping into the paper, we want to hear about yourself first. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Arif. Um, I'm excited to be here and talk about this paper, which was kind of a labor of love. Um, but yeah, first I'll tell you about myself. Uh, I grew up in Queens, New York, um, and which is kind of funny because there weren't a lot of plants around. So uh, that came later. Um, I did my undergraduate work at Hunter College, which is a public part of the public school, part of the City University of New York in, in New York City. And there I actually worked on Drosophila oogenesis as an undergrad researcher. And I think that really set me up to love development. Um, but then I was lucky enough to do a summer internship at Cold Spring Harbor. Um, and there I worked for the summer with Zach Littman. And he uh, taught me about plants. I think that was like the first time I ever saw a plant in, in like a different way. Like sure, there are trees around and everything. But to really see the pattern of plants. Uh, he taught me that and I fell in love. Um, and so when I graduated from undergrad, I wanted to do plant development, um, but I was worried about uh, pursuing a PhD in it because I had never taken a class that had ever covered anything about plants. My only experience was that one summer internship. So I wanted to do a master's degree and I got some funding, luckily, to do that with Jill Harrison, who was then in Cambridge uh, in the UK, which was super fun. Um, so I spent a year doing a research master's there. And that's actually when I started this project in a certain sense. Um, but then after that, I came back to New York City, kind of bummed around for a year, uh, made money by tutoring, and also volunteered at New York Botanic Garden for that year, and then started my PhD at Cornell, where I was advised by uh, Mike Scanlon and Adrian Roeder jointly. So a maize lab and an Arabidopsis lab, and I was working on moss. So yeah, that was the journey up until then. And then by, last year, I finished my PhD and moved down to Durham to work with Lucia Strader on oxen. Fantastic. I, I like that part, how it got into the plant over the years. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was a fun journey. I like telling that story because there was really an aha moment mm -hmm. where I remember Zach showing me patterns of inflorescence branching and how this was like a very mathematical unit that's repeated. And then it was like a third eye opened and I would like look around at plants and nature and be like, it's a pattern, it's a pattern, I see it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fantastic. So Joe, when I was reading the paper, I realized this paper is kind of heavily focused on the cytokinin, clever the signaling, and also the shoot meristem regulation. Um, so if you tell us briefly about what we know before studying this paper. Yeah. So um, the shoot apical meristem is where all of the above ground portions of the plant are derived from. This is where the stem cells uh, for the shoot are housed. And it's the site of patterning for leaves. And of course, wherever you pattern leaves, you've also patterned the potential for forming branches. Um, and so that's, for instance, in vegetative growth. During inflorescence mm -hmm. growth or reproductive stem, you could think of lateral organ patterning as being flowers. And you know, so where you're putting the flowers and then where you're putting petals mm -hmm. and all the pretty stuff that we like. And then that also has an impact, um, like the number of stem cells at the meristem also has an impact on how many um, carpels uh, you make in a lot of plants. And so not only does it affect whether the plant, how it looks, but it's very agriculturally important too, because, you know, for instance, the larger the meristem you have in the, for something like a tomato, you'll make more locules. You'll make a bigger tomato, um, something mm -hmm. like a beefsteak tomato, you know, for instance, we'll have this huge meristem with lots of stem cells that gave rise to all of those compartments. Um, so this is a really important site for, uh, you know, in nature, the plant having the right morphology, the right flower structure, everything like that, and in agriculture. Um, and so that's a really fun part of it for me. And as for what we know about it, um, there's the central feedback loop, right? This is when you learn about meristems, you learn about clavata wuschel. And that feedback loop is that there's this transcription factor called wuschel, which is expressed you know, in the center of the meristem, and that is promoting stem cell identity. And while it promotes stem cell identity, it also induces the expression of this uh, peptide encoding gene called clavata 3 which is like a signaling molecule, it signals intercellularly and acts through these receptor-like kinases, including clavata one and inhibits Wuschel. So it's a nice negative feedback loop, it establishes the stem cell homeostasis. So you don't have too many stem cells, or too few, um, and you can have a nice stable stem cell population size. That's one side of it. Cytokinin is another side of it where cytokinin promotes proliferation of stem cells, and also shoot uh, apical meristem establishment and identity. So for instance, if you have like a lateral root precursor, like a little meristem forming there, and you give it lots of cytokinin, you can convince that new meristem to become a shoot meristem instead of uh, a root. So one of the papers that was the big inspiration for me uh, during my PhD came out of the Meyerowitz lab. Elliot Meyerowitz's lab, and it was uh, Sean Gordon et al. 2009. And they did a lot of nice modeling uh, and showed this cool relationships between cytokinin signaling and uh, clavata wuschel signaling in the meristem, how this is all a nice balancing act. And it, um, there were a lot of cool dynamics in there that really grabbed my attention. And, and that was a big inspiration for me throughout my PhD. So I realized that this study uh, had like two previous papers uh, in current biology also 
which you are involved. So it looks like you are working on this direction for a while. So if you tell us like how you got started and what was the beginning question for this paper? Yeah, so I actually started working on this project kind of in my master's um, mm -hmm. with Jill Harrison and a graduate student in her lab at the time, uh, Chris Whitewoods, who is now a PI at the Sainsbury. Um, so he, I was kind of working under him a bit for this project, was really interested in the evolution of a three-dimensional body in plants, which is this cool thing that happened. So uh, plants' ancestors are these Carafaceae green algae, and they um, don't form what we call parenchymatous bodies. They don't have uh, like full three-dimensional control of cell division plane and growth. Cell divisions tend to occur in very stereotypical ways to essentially generate filaments or like one-dimensional bodies or mats like coleochaetae, which is really kind of like a branched filament if you, if you study the development of coleochaetae. Um, and it's only with the evolution of land plants that we see full three-dimensional bodies form in this lineage. And so um, moss is a really cool system for studying that because it recapitulates that evolutionary transition from 2D to 3D in its development. So it starts off as these two-dimensional filaments. And then from that, it transitions to forming these upright 3D bushy shoots called gametophores. And so Chris and Jill were really interested in that. And I joined that project uh, using to essentially knock out Clavada 1, uh, and also a gene called RPK2, which is another receptor like kinase that's active in stem cell signaling. Because Jill and Chris had sort of hypothesized that, you know, the shoot, making a shoot apical meristem is this first important step in the transition to 3D growth. So they wanted to see what would happen if you uh, messed with that. And so Chris kind of had this half of the project where he was knocking down all of the hormone peptides, the CLEs, like Clavada 3, um, using artificial microRNAs. And then I was knocking down all the receptors. And yeah, that led to that first paper in current biology, which was really fun. And later in the project, um, Zoe Nemec-Venza, who was another graduate student with Jill, joined and did a lot more really great follow-up analysis um, on expression patterns for all of these genes. That was really important for understanding like, how they acted together. So that was like a real big group effort. Yeah. Did that answer your question? I talked too much. Yeah, I think that, that answers how you started all these okay. things. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, the major part of this podcast is like, we try to give some take home message that if someone doesn't have the chance to read the paper, but they will listen to you and they will get to know the message, like what is the major findings of the paper. So if you briefly share us what was the major findings we should remember from this paper. So before I mentioned this clavada wuschel feedback loop mm -hmm. and that this is intertwined with cytokinin, uh, most of that work is done in Arabidopsis, but it's presumed to be somewhat conserved shifting some players around throughout flowering plants. Mm -hmm. So we tested this relationship between clavada and cytokinin signaling in moss, 
And I was really interested to see if there was any interaction there because in Moss, there is no Wuschel homologue, no close orthologue of Wuschel. Mm -hmm. And what we found was kind of surprising that Clavada and Cytokinin interact in this really similar way as they do in flowering plants, even though there's no Wuschel. And this is surprising because all of the interactions between these two pathways in flowering plants are only known to interact through Wuschel. Right. So there's this hub that's missing, mm -hmm. apparently. But the function of the pathways and their relationship with each other is still the same. So you uh, actually in this paper, there are lots of mathematical modeling uh, where I got lost when I was reading the paper. So can you tell us what was the purpose of uh, doing those modeling? Oh boy, yeah, I got <laughs> lost when I was doing it too. I'm, I'm not a mathematician by training. Okay. Um, I started by replicating the models that were mm -hmm. in the Gordon et al. paper. Okay. Um, and so if I can make those models work and repeat them, then uh, that's great. And then try and change them to reflect what was and was not there in Moss. That was the start of it. Right. Okay. But the, the crux of why we did the modeling or why I did the modeling was that um, I'm going to have to explain a little bit of the genetics in the paper. Is that okay? Please do that. I found the paper is very, very well written, uh, except that mathematical modeling part. I don't have expertise. So. Okay. Uh, yes, well, thank just you. go ahead. <laughs> thank you. So we started off by assessing how sensitive various clavotomies were to cytokinin. And that was somewhat informative. But then we kind of got to thinking that the real test of whether these pathways interact would be the higher order mutants. Right. So in Moss, there are three known cytokinin receptors. These are like the homologs of the AHK genes in Arabidopsis. And thankfully, somebody else had already made a CHK triple mutant. So starting with that, I knocked out Clavada1A, Clavada1B, and RPK2, um, which are the three known CLI receptors in the CHK mutant. So when you knock out the Clavada1 genes, you get too many stem cells. Uh, and it's known that cytokinin in moss also induces too many stem cells. So we thought if you knock out CHK, you would get fewer stem cells. And then if you made it the higher order mutant between Clavada and CHK, um, we could see whether there was some epistasis and that would tell us that these were in a pathway and we'd be able to make sense out of it. That didn't happen. The reason that didn't happen is because when you treat with cytokinin, right, you get too many stem cells. When you knock out the cytokinin receptors, you also get too many stem cells, which was this very surprising and backwards result. Um, and when you knock out cytokinin receptors in addition to the clavada receptors, you still kind of get too many stem cells. It certainly doesn't suppress the phenotype. Mm -hmm. So the reason we turned, the reason I turned to the modeling was to try and make sense of this um, and say, all right, here's this pathway that makes too many stem cells, but if I knock it out, you also get too many stem cells. 
what kind of network could could generate that set of phenotypes. Right. So I think one important thing about this paper, and not to like walk back my own findings too much, mm -hmm. but you know, the phenotypes are real. The quantification was difficult, but I tried my best and I, I believe it. Um, the models are a hypothesis. Models are always at, like just an hypo a hypothesis. And so they could, they are plausible. They fit the data. But there are, of course, many other similar or different network architectures that could also probably fit the data because the, it's infinite. The number of different ways you could make a model is infinite. True. So we tried to just make as simple as possible what is the most simple explanation that could fit the data. And I think that that gives you a good null hypothesis for future work. Um, and so my biggest hope is that someone tests this and says, well, Joe's models were totally wrong, but at least they were useful. That would be, that would be the dream. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Very nicely explained. So that kind of led me to the next question. Like, uh, so I know you moved to a different lab, but what do you think is like the next big question after this paper? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there are some experiments I would have done if not for COVID, of course. Um, so I mentioned there's no Wuschel, right? But there's the right. interaction is the same. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the models in the paper, there's this factor X in the model, which is just some unknown gene or pathway mm -hmm. that represents the hub between cytokinin and clavada signaling. And so I think one of the big questions is what is X? Um, and I have the suspicion that it would be worth checking out um, PAM. There's a gene called hairy meristem. Um, it interacts with Wuschel, does a lot of the same stuff in the meristem. Um, but whereas mosses have, they have wax genes, these Wuschel-like homeobox genes, but they're structurally quite different from Wuschel itself. <laughs> so they're missing a lot of the key components that Wuschel has, the key domains. Right. But moss does have a ham gene. And I remember I like made the guide RNAs for ham and I made plasmids and then I didn't really have any time to do the transformation to knock out the moss and not, uh, to knock out hams before I had to write up and leave. So I think that's one cool direction people could take it. Um, another cool direction would be like to knock out the other wax genes in conjunction with Clavada um, right. because people have made knockouts of the wax genes in moss and they didn't have any shoot phenotypes. Um, and that's, and they don't look like Wishel, so they're probably not doing what Wishel does, but honestly mm -hmm. it would be worth, you know, mm -hmm. it'd be worth Fine. checking. Yes. Yes. So uh, I have two small questions. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So usually in Arabidopsis that the Ox5 is basically in the root, not in the shoot. Right. Uh, like oaks. Um, so where does the, this oaks uh, express in the moss? The which gene? The uh, the uh, the oaks. The wax genes. Yes. So they are expressed at a low level and very mm -hmm. broadly. Okay. So they're not expressed in a place that would suggest that they are stem cell organizers. All right. Um, which is another clue that they're not. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good, thank you. This is a good question. What they're involved in is regeneration. Um, so when you, yeah. for instance, cut a uh, mm -hmm. moss leaf, it can regenerate filaments. And if you knock out the wax genes, that reinitiation of tip growth in those new filament cells doesn't go right and they just kind of sit there. All right. So I'm also curious about, so um, the moss doesn't have Uschel, uh, but did anyone try to just express the Arabidopsis Uschel to moss oh, and man. see what it does? Back in 2012, <laughs> 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 when I started working at Jill Harrison's lab, <laughs> I made that vector, and I don't okay. remember what, what happened with it. I think someone may have transformed it. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun idea. Um, I definitely made the wishel overexpression vector, but I have no idea what happened to it. <laughs> Okay. Interesting. I actually ask a lot of this kind of question, but uh, it was good to know that you thought about that and you made some vectors long time back. Honestly, it was a different person almost back 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. So Joe, um, can you tell us about the review process? Where, What are the places you submit? What are the things improved during the review process? And also like the, any story behind the cover page? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So we first posted this on BioArchive, um, which was really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm down in Durham now, and we had this thing um, where a bunch of plant signaling and hormone biologists got together in the, from the local area. Okay. And Zach Nimchuk mm -hmm. um, came, I think, for that or for something after that. Anyway, he was over at Duke one day. And he told me, like, oh, no, he, we talked about the paper, and then he read it on archive. And he pretty much emailed me and said, like, hey, you could improve it in these ways, um, which I think was really, really helpful. Um, and he, he works on Clavada signaling uh, yes. a lot in Rapidopsis. I think I saw there the BAM papers a few months back in PNS also. Yes, right. So people in his lab have done a lot of really, really amazing genetics. Mm. Because one of the problems, one of the difficulties is that there are so many of these receptors. Exactly. Yeah. So whew, power to them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was helpful. And then we, as in uh, Mike Scanlon, Adrian Roeder, and I, we worked on it a lot and thought about where we would want to set it, send it to. And I think because in my mind, it's sort of a spiritual successor to the Gordon et al. paper, which was in PNAS in 2009. Mm -hmm. I said, like, can we send it there? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I love that paper. And uh, okay. we tried and we got some reviews back and they were really positive. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So they wanted us to fix a lot of nomenclature. Um, to okay. make everything just more, hmm. they wanted to tighten it up in a lot of ways. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, they also asked for some experiments, for some qPCR okay. experiments to test our models, um, which we gave our best shot. And I think that they are, they kind of support and they don't really 
lead us to reject the hypothesis that's in the models, but nor do they like blow it out of the water and say like, okay. yeah, these are the ones, you know, they're, they're kind of like, yes, this is consistent with these models perhaps being correct, maybe. Okay. Um, I was a bit of a baby throughout the review process. I kind of whined a lot to my wife and to Mike and Adrian about <laughs> how much I hated changing the names of all of the genes in every... <laughs> In every figure and at every point of the text. And they were like, Joe, these are really nice reviews. Like, stop yeah, complaining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, God. Cool. Uh, so about the cover page, like, did uh, they approach uh, you to, to submit the cover? Yes. So the they, paper? that's right. They reached out and they said, um, you know, would you like to submit some images? And one thing I learned during my PhD is that uh, people in my in talks, they've never looked at confocal images of moss shoots before. So they were just like, I don't really know what I'm looking at. And I would try really hard to make it understandable, but they would always come up to me afterwards and be like, you know, I, I didn't really understand what I was looking at, but they were great images. They looked so good, man. And I'm like, oh, thank you. I wish you understood better, but I'm glad you liked them. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they reached out to us. Um, I sent some, I think I sent like 15 of my favorite images to Mike and Adrian, and mm -hmm. then we narrowed it down to three. And we kind of almost didn't send the one that wound up getting picked. Mm -hmm. uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't one of the ones that we were all like, Adrian had, in particular has always loved this image. And I remember the first time I showed it to her, and it's in the paper too, a version of it, a different version. Um, she was like, this has got to go in the paper um, because it nicely shows all of these moss stem cells like in this really wide apical region of the moss shoot, which is just really connects it to the Arabidopsis clavata mutant phenotype. And this is in a moss clavata mutant. So you've got this yeah. big swollen apex mm -hmm with all of these little stem mm. cells in there, but they're single-celled stem cells. There's so much to talk about here. I feel like, oh. um, <laughs> yeah, and they, um, when they picked it, I couldn't believe it. I was so surprised. Awesome. So uh, one thing I can tell, if you have some favorite images that you couldn't put in the paper on the cover, you send me uh, that image. I'll use it for the cover art of this episode. Sure, that would be great. <laughs> Yeah, that would be really fun. Okay, awesome. So, Joe, we're kind of at the end of the episode. Uh, so before we let you go, if you want to thank someone or acknowledge someone for this work, please go ahead and do so. Thanks so much for having me again. Um, I, of course, want to thank Mike and Adrian. Um, I couldn't have done this project to half as, half as well without them. Uh, of course, I want to thank Jill Harrison for getting me started on Clavada signaling all those many, many years ago. And I think the work that her lab has continued to do on it has been really great as well. Um, and so I really want to point awesome. people to look at that, to look at Zoe's work. Um, and of course, I want to thank like my wife, who has, she's also a PhD. And so we were awesome. often kind of in it together, <laughs> like... <laughs> struggling with the similar things um and chris whitewoods who 
was a hilarious mentor to work on, to work with uh, during the beginning of this project. And please go check out his work uh, as well. And Enrico Cohen's lab when he was a postdoc and now he's working on air spaces in, in Leeds, which is this cool thing. So Nice. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully we'll come back with another great story in the next episode.